This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on how RPM Boris Johnson keeps managing to avert all blame. Head rock and pop critic Alexis Petridis meets legendary DJ Fatboy Slim in his hometown of Hove. Writer Emma Beddington gives us food for thought on whether winging it actually works or not. And finally, writer Imogen Westnights reflects on how mid-century chic furniture has become the go-to for millennials. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is often in headlines for some things he's said or done, and yet he manages to avoid taking blame for any wrongdoing. So when it comes to the worst rail strikes in 30 years, stories of alleged nepotism when he was in the Foreign Office, or an ill-conceived Rwanda immigration plan, Marina Hyde asks, why can't the man at the top take responsibility? Good to learn Boris Johnson chaired a cabinet meeting on the cost of living crisis on Tuesday morning, mere hours after Monday night's lavish Conservative fundraiser in which someone paid £37,000 for a shooting weekend. Benefit claimants to be given high-vis jackets and a five-minute head start. Other lots included a £65,000 African safari. The same thing, only played out in a Kigali hotel. And £120,000 for dinner with Johnson, David Cameron and Theresa May. Together. Of that latter Sartrean prize, one fundraiser attendee told Politico, I suspect it's the kind of thing CCHQ auctions off but never actually happens. A lot like most government policies then. Johnson himself has been recovering from an operation on his nose Tuesday morning with speculative explanations ranging from things people accuse you of when you're the sort of guy who tells never-ending lies to the things people accuse you of when you're the sort of guy who tells never-ending lies. Or to give those the headline they deserve, Geppetto's boy spotted talking about himself for nine hours in Studio 54. 
Actual medical explanations range from sinus trouble to the plucky sinuses simply rejecting the rest of Johnson's body in a lone, hopelessly courageous protest that has now been brutally shut down by surgery. Their struggle should not be forgotten. For now, Johnson's friends keep saying things like he's in King Kong mode, which feels like a reality-bending thing to say about a guy who increasingly looks like a court artist drawing of the honey monster, or maybe Darth Sidious with a brie addiction. Either way, all this takes place against the backdrop of industrial action by railway workers, which the government cares almost enough about to make the smallest possible effort to stop it. But not quite. It's hard to imagine how the strikers could have engendered a sense of solidarity in ministers. Maybe if one in eight male railway workers were currently the subject of sexual misconduct allegations, as around one in eight male MPs are, it would have sparked some kind of game-recognised game camaraderie. As it is, the RMT says employers have offered them a 2% pay rise with the potential of 1% raise if they accept redundancies and changes to work practices. While a government that a few months ago was unwisely promising a high-wage economy now says airily of that aim, I wouldn't put a time frame on it. Which means so much more coming from MPs who recently got a 2.7% pay rise, with Jacob Rees-Mogg leading the successful effort to stop the release of security pass data, showing how often they even turn up to Parliament. Mogg is now reportedly refusing to even wear his parliamentary pass, claiming an absolute and ancient right of access to the building. In resolutely unrelated news, Boris Johnson has just derided railway workers for working practices that in some cases date back to the 19th century. No doubt Downing Street hopes this sort of thing will distract from the other thing about which there has been much chatter here and even overseas. Friday night's time story about Johnson offering his then-girlfriend, now-wife Carrie, a job as his chief of staff at the Foreign Office. This was pulled from later editions of the Saturday paper and online following a call from Downing Street. A number of sources have since suggested to various outlets that the story is true, while even the Prime Minister's spokesperson strangely refuses to go on the record on behalf of the nation's leading liar to say it isn't. Carrie Johnson's spokesperson has gone with a classic non-denial denial. This is an old story which is as untrue now as it was then. You'll have spotted that this enlightens you about as much as a statement like... There is the same amount of cash in my purse now as there was then. Off the record, Downing Street suggested the story was sexist. Hmm. There is often an element of sexism in coverage of the Johnsons, as indeed there often is in coverage of, say, Meghan and Harry. It is central to some people's self-delusion about what has happened to their golden boy Boris to claim that he has been captured and turned bad by a woman as opposed to being capable of acting like an immoral, grasping and chaotic dignity vacuum all on his own. In fact, it's all he's ever done. He's the event horizon of ethics. Sorry if it seemed confusing for anyone. As Miles, the more powerful individual in the couple dynamic, it's all on Johnson. And Johnson alone, if he sought to make his girlfriend chief of staff at the Foreign Office or his now-wife comms chief for a Prince William project or a COP26 ambassador, 
It's all on the Prime Minister if he covertly grubs up to donors to buy him gold wallpaper that she has chosen. Just as it was all on him when he intervened to take his Infosec guru girlfriend on three lucrative trade missions with him when he was Mayor of London. His refusal to take responsibility for any of it ever has increasingly created a government in his own image, one that ricochets between blame shifting and clean up. Of course the strikes are Labour's fault, even though they've been out of power 12 years and counting. Of course lawyers are the reason they don't have a working immigration policy. Of course there is no reason for taking responsibility for breaking your own laws. Of course you couldn't even be expected to know your own laws. People have spent way too long musing about what Johnsonism is when it really is transparently simple. It's always always someone else's fault and by extension someone else's problem that was strikes labor's fault immigration lawyer's fault don't blame boris johnson by marina hyde read by erin shanahan next the legendary musician and dj norman cook also known as fatboy slim has developed a programme sharing his skills as part of an NHS mental health initiative. Here, he talks to Alexis Petridis about the joys of Dex, his own lockdown blues, and being reduced to tears by his own kids as they've embarked on their own independent journeys into DJing. Read by George Giorgio. Wednesday lunchtime and a restaurant on Hove's seafront is being treated to a drum and bass remix of Althea and Donna's 1978 reggae hit, Uptown Top Ranking. You could call the volume it's playing at cutlery rattling, if there was any cutlery in the restaurant to rattle, but there isn't. Service is suspended. The tables have been pushed to the side, and in the centre of the room, Norman Cook is teaching Jess and Amber, two 20-something women, how to DJ. Headphones on, one ear only, so you can hear the track you're queuing up while listening to the track that's currently playing with the other. It's a task he approaches with huge enthusiasm and an admirable lack of pretension. They make a kind of wow sound, he shrugs, indicating the filter knob on the mixer, which is both hugely engaging and, for anyone who's followed Cook's career as Fatboy Slim, doesn't come as much of a surprise. In the late 90s superstar DJ era, when some of his peers were wont to make eyebrow-raising claims, Paul Oakenfield famously justified his fees by noting that he didn't merely play records, he also raised his hands, pointed at people in the crowd and smiled, concluding, I am an entertainer. Cook regularly incurred their wrath by declining to take his jobs as seriously. A monkey could do what I do was one of his more celebrated pronouncements. He doesn't say anything like that today. I think, he smiles, I was probably being a bit over-modest when I said that stuff because I'd been a musician in the House Martins and all my musician friends were like, but you're just playing records. But he does suggest to his students that the most important thing to remember about the filter knobs on the mixer is to make a face when you're turning them. This is mine, he adds, leaning forward and throwing his head back in apparent ecstasy. Cook is here as part of a charity-funded NHS scheme to set up arts events for people with severe mental health problems, 
That also involves singing workshops, samba classes and sound healing. I really wanted to make music accessible for all, says Natalie Rowlands, a senior occupational therapist who programmed the events. To break down the stigmas around mental illness, to build people's confidence and to have really high class music workshops in really nice venues. A lot of the people here have been musical in the past, but they've gone through so much. You know, they're coming out of it again and this gives them an amazing opportunity. Natalie reached out to me and it sounded interesting. Nods Cook. It's sort of life-affirming, really. It's good for me to see the people who've never touched a set of decks before going between two tracks and thinking, Woo! Sometimes I can get a bit blasé about what I do for a job and seeing that innocent joy about the way you can manipulate music, it's exciting. It centres you, gives you a nice warm feeling. So it's joyful to see people who've been struggling going through that process. It seems faintly amazing that Cook has time to get involved. At 58, and almost a quarter of a century after Fatboy Slim's commercial peak as a recording artist, his DJ schedule sounds exhausting. Switzerland, Poland, Glastonbury, France, Berlin. Two nights on Brighton Beach, celebrating the 20th anniversary of his Big Beach Boutique event, which legendarily attracted 250,000 people and brought the city to a standstill. In the aftermath, there was so much uproar that Cook subsequently left the country at the suggestion of his then-neighbour, Paul McCartney. It turned out that if you put all the people who were going to little nightclubs in one place, there was a lot of us, he says. This one's limited to 7,500 people. They're in a pen on the beach and there's no glass allowed on site. It's very boutique, big beach boutique. It all comes as a vast relief after what he calls... An interesting lockdown. My whole job is to make large amounts of people commune and do everything that we weren't supposed to be doing. For the first couple of weeks, I thought, what do I do? Like a lot of DJs, he posted weekly mixes online, which kind of kept my mental health on track. And I had the summer off that I'd always promised myself. Then in the autumn, my son went off to university and my daughter was back in school and the walls started to close in a bit. Eventually, he took a job serving in the cafe he owns in Hove. We had a case of COVID, lost two-thirds of our staff, and it was either shut down or all hands on deck. I worked there for seven months. People would walk along the seafront because, well, that's all that they were allowed to do. And it was there where they got their coffee at the end of the walk. So it felt like we were the last bastion of community and connection. It was interesting because I've never done an honest job for years. It kept me sane, really. But being back has been joyous. In May 2021, he played a mask-free show in Liverpool as part of the government's events research programme to see if it was viable to return to mass gatherings. It was just freaky. There was this thing of, if this cocks up, that could be everybody's stuff for another six months. Our job was to test first and then go all in and just lick each other's faces and get properly involved and see what happens, which we were all prepared to do. It felt weird for the first two minutes and then, he grins, it was the moment of the clock striking 12 on New Year's Eve, but all night, just kissing strangers, hugging strangers, because you could. DJing's a two-way thing. It's just a middle-aged man playing records in his kitchen. You forget the euphoria and the connection. Within three minutes, it was, why is my heartbeat so fast? Oh, 
I'm excited. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> I remember that feeling. Covid notwithstanding, Cook's DJing career just seems to have steamrolled on at an arena-packing level, unaffected by changing times, tastes, or indeed his decision to, more or less, stop making music of his own. He told The Guardian in the early thousands that if his records stopped selling, he would seriously consider packing it all in, and proved true to his word after 2004's Palookaville failed to match the platinum success of previous Fatboy Slim albums. His 2009 album, under the name Brighton Poor Authority, which came complete with up-teen star guests, including Iggy Pop and Dizzy Rascal, and a complex backstory involving the career of a fake band, attracted few takers. Since then, he's released only a scant handful of tracks, although one of them, 2013's Eat, Sleep, Rave, Repeat, was a meme-provoking top three hit. Variations on its title circulate online to this day. My enthusiasm for making records kind of waned a bit, but my enthusiasm for DJing has never waned. And because I enjoy it so much, it's not just arena tours, I play in clubs all year round. It's like Freshers' Week, the new intake are down the front of the clubs. There's kids going, my parents played your records when I was growing up. And because I'm playing at their local club down the road, well, they come and see me out of interest and he laughs, another soul is mine. Still, there are definite markers of time's passing, not least the fact that his children have started DJing. His 10-year-old daughter Nelly performed on a live stream for Camp Festival during lockdown. There was a fabulous moment when Cook attempted to adjust something on the mixer and was shooed away. His son Woody, meanwhile, is proper full-time. He did five gigs last week, got into DJing because his flatmate was a DJ. Two months after he left home, I'm going to be a DJ now. All those years when I could have imparted my wisdom and he didn't want to know. Last summer, he played in Ibiza at Mambo and I was in the DJ booth with him. As the sun set, he played At the River by Groove Armada and I burst into tears. <laughs> I can remember when he used to sit in the corner of the DJ booth, couldn't even see over the top. It was the only safe place to put him because there was such mayhem going on all around. Me and Zoe, Bull, his ex-wife, never ever pushed it on either of them. But he's grown to love it and choose it completely independently. So, it appears, have at least some of the participants in today's workshop. I talk briefly to Jess, a 34-year-old drummer who was at music school until her mental health hit me hard. She says she came at the suggestion of her support worker. You can just vanish into nothingness in creativity, but you need to just hang on somehow and put yourself out there again. She found matching beats quite easy and genuinely loved it. It makes you want to pursue it more and think, I am good enough. I do exist in the world. I'm not just past it. Back in the restaurant, the sound of drum and bass is still ringing out. Another of the participants seems to have completely got the hang of mixing, including the filter knobs. Cook steps back and looks on. Well, there's nothing more I can teach you now. He grins and gives her a high five. That was Twiddle a Knob and Make a Face. Norman Cook on his mental health DJ classes by Alexis Petridis. Read by George Giorgio. We'll be back after this short break. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, forget the spreadsheets and make it up as you go along. That's the message of leaders from Elon Musk to Boris Johnson. But is acting on instinct really a good idea? Writer Emma Beddington explores whether winging it is really a viable method to achieving success. Read by George Giorgio. There are, it seems, two types of winging it stories. First, there are the triumphant ones. The victories pulled cheekily, improbably, from the jaws of defeat. Like the time a historian, who prefers to remain nameless turned up to give a talk on one subject, only to discover her hosts were expecting and had advertised another. I wrote the full thing, an hour-long show, in ten panicked minutes, she says. At the end, a lady came up to congratulate me on how spontaneous my delivery was. Then there's the other kind of winging it story, the kind that ends in ignominy. Remember the safeguarding minister, Rachel McLean, tying herself in, factually inaccurate knots, when asked about stop-and-search powers. The Australian journalist Matt Duran, who interviewed Adele without listening to her album. Or the culture secretary, Nadine Dorries, claiming Channel 4 was publicly funded, then that Channel 5 had been privatised. There are even worse examples. As a young journalist, Sarah Dempster was unwell when she was supposed to review a meatloaf concert, so she wrote the piece without attending. An hour after publication, the paper called to inform me that the gig had, in fact, been cancelled. I was sacked, she tweeted. The Sun wrote a piece about it. The headline, Meat Oaf. Why does anyone wing it, and how do they dare? As a lifelong dreary prepper, I've been wondering this since reading a profile in the New York Times of winger extraordinaire Elon Musk. To a degree unseen in any other mogul, the entrepreneur acts on whim, fancy, and the certainty that he is 100% right. It related detailing how Musk wings, even the biggest decisions, operating on gut feeling and without a business plan, rejecting expert advice. What, I wonder, is the appeal of this strategy? And is it a legitimate, indeed more successful way of doing business? Can Musk the CEO of Tesla, a company with a market capitalization of $570 billion, and the founder of SpaceX, the first private company to send humans into space, really be winging it? Some are sceptical. Is this self-presentation or an accurate statement? Asks Tomas Chamorro Premozic, an organizational psychologist and the author of 
Why do so many incompetent men become leaders? Musk is probably way too smart to actually operate under that principle. He uses this arrogant self-presentation to his advantage. Brand Musk accounts for a big chunk of his success. In contrast, he says, the recent Netflix SpaceX documentary shows Musk as quite self-critical, quite humble. It's an idea echoed by Stefan Stern, a visiting professor at the Bayes Business School at City University of London and the author of Myths of Management. I can't believe he doesn't draw on data. It's a leading edge thing he's engaged in. When you promote yourself as a sort of visionary or hero, you absolutely want to try and claim that there's something special about your insights. They're not a petty, banal matter of data. The implication is that Musk is like those school kids who claim not to have done a minute's revision, then ace the exam. There is, the argument goes, something innately appealing about someone operating effortlessly on flair, instinct and inspiration. A Steve Jobs, not a Jao Confei, the discreet founder of Lens Technology and the richest woman in China, who Chamoro Primozic says credits her success to hard work and a relentless desire to learn. There's something romantic to the idea that there are mavericks who don't need to work very hard, adds Chamora Premozic. We say we value hard work and dedication, but by definition, talent is more of an extraordinary gift, and we celebrate that more. The leadership expert, Eve Poole, agrees. No one wants to make it feel like hard work, she says. No one wants to say, I slaved in front of a spreadsheet for 20 hours before I made that decision. For Stern, Boris Johnson's apparent penchant for winging it carries a similar message. When he says, we got the big calls right, he's saying, these small-minded people obsess about data and numbers and statistics. But with my instinct, my judgment, the uniquely gifted, insightful leader got the big calls right. It's not even true. His self-presentation as a charismatic figure with panache, who is apparently spontaneous, is particularly interesting, Stern says, given that the other thing we know about Johnson is he's not spontaneous, he doesn't have good lines off the cuff. You see that disastrous CBI pepper pig speech in November, recent prime minister's questions, performances, or his testy defensive responses in more probing interviews. Is there any foundation for the notion that gut feeling is superior to pedestrian, data-driven decision-making? The cognitive psychologist Gary Klein has spent his career researching intuition in decision-making. 35 years on, his research on how firefighters act swiftly under pressure in tough situations is still cited. We weren't looking for intuition, he says. Rather, his team's original theory was that firefighters might be rapidly evaluating two options when they decided how to tackle a fire. They told us, we don't compare any options. More than that, they said, we never make any decisions. Klein didn't understand how firefighters could believe only one course of action was possible and land on it without making comparisons. Further digging revealed a different picture. With 15 to 20 years of experience, Klein explains the firefighters were classifying the situation based on fires they had seen, a process known as pattern matching. The second step Klein called mental stimulation. The firefighters would visualise how a course of action would run and adjust their model accordingly. It's a blend of intuition and analysis, says Klein. The process was near instantaneous. 
Most decisions were made in less than a minute. So, what looks like winging it can, in fact, be instinctive decision-making, backed up by experience, what Paul calls really quick heuristics in your brain, synaptic connections established through years of conditioning. Leaders who trust that, she says, are just fucking excellent. This decision-making model is common in one of the areas where people are least comfortable with the idea of winging it. Healthcare. No one wants to end up in the hands of a seat-of-the-pants neurosurgeon, but Klein's research suggests medical professionals use intuitive decision-making and gut feeling as a matter of course. His book, The Power of Intuition, tells the story of an experienced neonatal intensive care unit nurse accurately diagnosing a baby with sepsis just by walking past the incubator and getting a gut feeling when a less experienced nurse who had been conscientiously tracking all the infant's vitals had failed to spot it. An experienced physician sees a cluster of cues and says sepsis. We've heard stories of someone who was just a resident. There was a tough case and they called the attending physician. The attending physician does not even enter the room and from the door just looks at the patient and sees there's an issue and says, ah, congestive heart failure. The experiences that fed intuition can be less concrete. Paul has been researching what humans still have to offer in a world which AI is ever more powerful, such as what she calls witch-style intuition, that sense of foreboding when you enter a room or meet someone. We all have those feelings and we tend to discount them and think they're a bit silly and weird, she says. But I think it's probably coming from the collective historical unconscious trying to keep us safe as a species. There are, she says, two strands. Your own desperately hard-earned gut feeling laid down in templates of data and knowledge. Then the spooky ephemera that you can pick up through spidey sense, which I think can still be really reliable. It can but it isn't always. Intuition of any kind is not infallible. Klein describes it as a data point, something to take into consideration, not to accept uncritically. One area in which intuition gives demonstrably poor outcomes is recruitment. As Chamorro Premozic explains, unstructured interview processes increase and reinforce conscious and unconscious biases about candidates. We all believe our own intuition to be superior, he says. In an interview situation, this is a big problem because hiring managers think they have an ability to see through candidates and to understand whether they are competent. Companies will spend large amounts on diversity and inclusion, then tell you they hire for culture fit. And the main way to evaluate culture fit is whether somebody feels right in a job interview. Even if managers are well-meaning and open-minded, they will gravitate towards candidates who are like them and they are comfortable with. Moreover, studies show that people tend to make up their minds in the first 60 to 90 seconds, he says. This is a pattern recognition gone wrong, according to Stern. When decision makers see someone who reminds them of themselves, they think, oh yeah, he's got the right stuff. I used to be like him. Donald Trump springs to mind here. I read Klein a typical Trump pronouncement. I have a gut and my gut tells me more sometimes than anybody else's brain can ever tell me. It reminds Klein of two dangerous fallacies about intuition. One, some people think intuition is innate ability, which I don't think it is. It's based on experience. Two, intuition is a general skill and will apply in lots of different situations. I don't think that's true. 
having decent intuition in an area where you have professional experience, like real estate, he says pointedly, does not mean that you have a transferable skill. Talking to people who admit to winging it reveals that mainly they mean the good kind of intuition, calling on a wealth of relevant experience and deploying it in defined circumstances. That often involves an element of performance, where spontaneity can be the secret ingredient. Susanna, who works in publishing, says, I love to wing it in sales presentations. When I wing it, I suddenly feel a new angle. It works every time. But only, I think, because I'm winging stuff I already know deeply. Kathy, a senior financial services strategist, says, If it's something I don't know at all, I won't wing it. But in my area of expertise, I'm the queen of prep five minutes before the meeting. These are the good wingers, but of course the bad ones are out there. The lazy, the grandiose blaggers and the bullshitters, too often in positions of power. There are a lot of men, particularly, who do that, says Paul. I think it does appeal to people who don't feel anything anymore. It's also boring, and that's the way you get some feelings. It gives them a massive adrenaline rush, makes them feel very powerful and victorious. It's not usually a successful long-term strategy. She adds, comfortingly, what Chamorro Premozic calls the sense of Teflon-style immunity betrays them eventually. I just think you get caught out. It's the spin of the wheel, and that's why I hate it. It's so risky for your organization. But we still admire them, buy their products, even vote for them. Why do we fall for it? It is a lack of followship maturity, according to Chamorro Premozic, and varies from culture to culture. I grew up in South America, where if you work hard and you succeed, you're automatically a loser, he says. Whereas if you bullshit and deceive people, we should worship you. There are cultures that truly value self-improvement, hard work and knowledge, and there are cultures that value confidence. A country that wants to be entertained, he says, is likely to apply low standards for leadership, preferring self-belief to caution and hard work. Whether it's Trump, Boris, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, they celebrate them because they challenge the establishment. When they behave in anarchic ways, disrespecting the rules, I think they can channel the anger that people have. The kicker is that we assume there's some competence behind the blagging and bluster, that the emperor is fully clothed. But how do we work out if it's true? Spreadsheet or gut? That was, if you work hard and succeed, you're a loser. Can you really wing it to the top? By Emma Bennington. Read by George Giorgio. Finally, curvy sofas, industrial finishes, pastel overload. Mid-century's furnishings have come to define the millennial look. What's the appeal? And what will our homes look like next? Writer Imogen West Knights highlights how the millennial generation's tastes in furniture have become a homogenous go-to. Read by Erin Shanahan. For two years from 2017, I was subletting a flat in Stockholm and the deal was that it would contain everything except the owner's clothes and some of her books. This suited me as I hadn't taken anything with me except clothes and some books. 
My new abode scored almost full marks on the Millennial Apartment Bingo Card, created in 2018 by Laura Shocker for the Apartment Therapy website. It featured 24 mainstays of home decor to tick off and went viral on Instagram. In my flat sitting room, a neon love sign was fixed over the brass bar cart. There was a faux cowhide rug here and a Berber-style rug there. It also had an Eames knockoff chair, a marble table with rose gold legs, kooky contrasts between round, soft things and hard, angular things and plants everywhere. Edison light bulbs in rose gold cages, brass pineapple bookends either end of a shelf peppered with mini cactuses... It had the lot. None of these things were bad in themselves, but the cliché of it all made me feel queasy, and I vowed that when I was able to make my own choices, I would be different. My flat would be recognisably mine, not an amalgam of things I had seen on Instagram. When I returned to London, I bought some furniture of my own, a wood and iron coffee table from Wayfair, a mustard yellow armchair in the Habitat sale... But then I began to notice something. My furniture, pieces I had carefully selected from various retailers, was in other people's homes. Or rather, if not my furniture, furniture suspiciously like my furniture. I struggled to describe the style a lot of my friends had adopted. It wasn't quite the bingo card look, no rose gold and millennial pink, but it was close. It was mid-century Ish, often with clean lines and exposed wood, but not strictly so. Often it had industrial finishes, tables with black metal legs, curvy sofas atop narrow legs that looked at once sturdy and spindly. Where did this pastel scalloped modernist look come from? How has it weaseled its way into everything from estate agent windows to Harry Styles' new album cover? I asked interiors writer Nathan Marr what he would call the style. A millennial perversion of mid-century, he said. Let's call it mid-century millennial then, because it does feel quite generational. Or perhaps that should be made-century millennial, as the furniture company Made.com seems to have a particular chokehold on both this style and youngish furniture buyers. It more than doubled its UK warehouse space last year thanks to the lockdown furniture boom and reported a 38% increase in sales at the start of this year, despite supply chain issues. It's a company whose furniture seems to gesture at taste that is affordable for those who have moved on from Ikea, but without the price point of designer goods. When I started asking where friends had bought their Scandinavian-ish dining chairs and velvet sofas with toothpick legs, made was often the answer. For many, Shocker told me, anything mid-century is really equated with quality. Looks can be deceiving, though. These dupes from places like Maid, Wayfair, Swoon and the like often look great on the website and are fine to sit on in a showroom for three minutes, but having them in your home is different. I asked my friend Thurston how come he has owned not one, but three made sofas. They felt a touch more sophisticated than Ikea, but each time I'd realise it was deeply uncomfortable he said. One grey sofa was rock hard. In the US, a 2017 article about West Elm's particularly 
dissatisfying Peggy Couch, named predictably after the Madman character, went so viral that the company ended up offering refunds to anyone who'd bought it. Millie Burroughs, who used to work in furniture PR, told me the mid-century trend has been around for about a decade. It's a trickle-down from the high-end stuff, the same as you see in fashion. In 2013, she noticed at trade fairs that Danish brands such as Gooby were bringing out new takes on mid-century furniture. They would get picked up by a hotel or a restaurant, then people see them and want them in their homes. The reign of the mid-century aesthetic may seem arbitrary, but it's the opposite of what many millennials grew up with in their parents' homes. I was surrounded by lots of Victorian-esque layering, florals, chintz, colour, says furniture designer Sheena Murphy, and maybe we got tired of that. And for younger people who are often renting and moving around a lot, mid-century millennial pieces suit because they are relatively compact. Because mid-century has been around since, well, the mid-20th century, it will also fit into homes from new-build flats to Victorian conversions. And the genius of companies like Made is that while every piece is different, they all fit the same vibe, can be mixed and matched with ease, and work with other millennial trends such as wonky vases, enamel crockery, and Matilda Goad raffia placemats. There's a comfort in mid-century's perceived timelessness. It feels like a safe bet. Something you want to own for the next decade at least. And as it's everywhere, it's reassuringly familiar to buyers. I asked Ali Edwards, design lead at Made, why sort of mid-century was so appealing. In uncertain times, people often revert to what they know best, she says. Murphy speculates that maybe it has such longevity because it felt futuristic when it appeared 80-odd years ago. Perhaps that's given it a little more runway. I remember when I got my mid-century bookshelf and my mum said, in as loving as way as possible, that it looked like something a grandmother would own. Perhaps future trends skip generations and my kids will decorate their Moon Connolly bedrooms with frilly, flowery cushions. But now that it is so ubiquitous, the mid-century millennial style is no doubt set to wane. So what might come next? Everyone I asked thinks that 70s-style rattan will be big. Shocker also suggested a trend she's calling Memphis Deco, a combination of the geometric forms of 1980s Memphis design with the soft colours and curves of Art Deco. Murphy said we should expect to see more mid-century, but with the addition of what she called chunk. Out with hairpin legs and in with pieces that have more visual weight. She cites designer Percival Lafer, maker of heavy, masculine, loungy mid-century furniture. One thing is for certain, Gen Z won't want anything that reminds them of their cringy millennial elders. I asked my 20-year-old sister what decor her peers are into. Clutter and colours and warmth, she said. Gen Z like to be quirky. Maybe it's a generational fear of being basic. Gen Z are also a bit more sustainably minded. My sister has customised an old chest of drawers with bright, mismatched second-hand knobs. Interior designer Emily Shaw, 23, known as at Emily Rayner on TikTok, where she has 5.4 million followers, told me younger generations have more of a fix-upper mindset. And not only because they can't afford to spend £1,200 on a sofa.
According to Shaw, designers on TikTok are making a lot more educational content, so users see not only inspiration for their homes, but step-by-step instructions on how to realise it. I've seen a lot of people taking furniture and adding wooden dowels or lollipop sticks to add texture, she says. Nathan Ma has also noticed a penchant for textures, which has led in some unfortunate directions. Gigi Hadid has some hideous kitchen cabinets decorated with coloured pasta and recent TikTok trends include spray-painting swimming pool noodles to create headboards and using expanding insulation foam to decorate frameless mirrors. One of my artist friends has decoupage photos of mouldy sandwiches on her dining table, Ma says. This kind of quirkiness can lead to more furniture being thrown away as trend-based interiors are also fast interiors destined for the charity shop or landfill. Homeware purchases have surged since the pandemic and in recent years, H&M, Pretty Little Thing and even Poundland have moved into homewares. The more cheap home furnishings we buy, the more we're going to throw away. And as awareness of that grows, people may think twice about whether a mutedly stylish mid-century millennial sofa is what they really want. Perhaps one of the best places to look for clues about interior trends is the gallery at influential London restaurant hub Sketch, newly redesigned by India Madhavi. Her 2014 design with David Shrigley helped launch the global phenomenon of millennial pink. Today it glows a golden yellow with metallic wallpaper and soft mustardy banquettes. Madhavi says the new space filled with contrasting tactile textures has warmth because that's what we need now, I think. Togetherness again. Perhaps what comes next will be not so much a look as with mid-century millennial as a feeling. That was... Design of the Times, how the mid-century look took over our homes by Imogen West Knights, read by Erin Shanahan. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by George Giorgio and Erin Shanahan and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Jar Jar Mohammed. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. 
Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.